Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 410. The only reason that we race cars is because it's illegal to fist fight. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. 2015 marks Covercraft's 50th anniversary. They've manufactured premium quality exterior and interior covers here in the United States with a reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit with over 80,000 patterns and growing. You can choose from dozens of fabric options and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicle. Made in the USA, Covercraft is the right choice. I've protected my special rides with their covers for over 40 years, and you should too. Learn more today at Covercraft.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Cameron Evans. Cameron, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yeah, I don't have seven points of buckle up, but I've got five points of buckle up. <laughs> I'll try to keep it between the lines for you here, too, so you don't need any of those those uh, buckle up points, okay? Cameron Evans is the president of Redline Synthetic Oil, a division of Phillips 66. He grew up in a family with a passion for racing, and his late father was Steve Evans, motorsports broadcasting legend. Cameron was the editor of Popular Hot Rodding Magazine and host of their television show. He's managed NHRA pro teams and worked for years in television production at Diamond P Sports. He's raced motorcycles, sports car, Formula Mazda, and today races at Beamer World Redline Chump Car. That's interesting. We'll have to learn about that. NASA, SCCA, BMW, CCA, and many others. So Cameron, I've told our listeners just a tiny bit about you. Would you take a moment and share a little bit more about your career and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Absolutely, Mark. You know, a lot of people ask me, how did you get in this business? And I really didn't have a choice in that it's pretty much all we've ever done. You know, my grandfather, a guy named Jay Evans, was the concessionaire basically the local hot dog stand owner in the San Gabriel Valley, the Pasadena area in California, where the first drag strip was ever built. And Burke Kellogg, who owned the original ground on the San Gabriel dragway, came to him. That was his banker. The guy was the president of the Barclays Bank and said, hey, Jay Evans, you know all the kids in high school that are causing these street racing problems. Why don't we drag them out to the strip? And and so my, my grandfather was really involved with that from day one. So you can imagine that means that my uncle and my father ended up having to flip burgers at the drag strip from their <laughs> early parts of their lives. Well, my my uncle got uh, interested in other stuff. My dad stayed really interested in cars, and so he did everything to you know really sacrifice his life, college time, a lot of that to buying the Santa Maria drag strip when he was too young too young to own it. Mm-hmm. You know, his first. Uh, a real job was the editor of National Dragster, you know, NHRA's house publication. So he was really brought under Wally Park's wing to help develop that association from a very early time. And he and uh, and his partner at the time, Bill Doner, bought a lot of racetracks up and down the West Coast. And he found, my dad found, as Bill Doner did, that they were 
that the announcers they wanted to hire were pretty unreliable and they were better at it anyway. <laughs> so it turned into a life where even though we were very involved with drag racing and that early promotion of funny cars and things in the early 70s when I was a young kid, sports car racing was always part of our lives. And, you know, uh, my father promoted some of the earliest, most successful Trans Am races like up in, it's, uh, up in your neck of the woods in Seattle International Raceway and things mm. like that. Yeah. So we were always involved with sports cars, but very heavily involved in drag racing. So as my dad's career developed through television, I was tagging along and working at some of those races and, and my car interest really developed through all that time. And, and I'm very fortunate because it's not varied. I meet a lot of guys in the car business that are just into certain types of cars and they don't give themselves the freedom of looking into other parts of the industry other or other types of cars that they might actually enjoy quite a bit. So yeah. I have as much fun with muscle cars and sports cars and race cars as I do with some of the antiques and things like that, but it's been a uh, it's been a heck of a ride to get me to where I am now. Uh, you know, as the president of Redline Oil, I would say that I never thought I would have a job like this, but it's actually the job that I did think I'd have because I knew that as I was going through the industry from media, from a technical side with all the race teams and you know engineers and people that we knew that as I was gaining this knowledge that the, that a company like Redline was where I would want to try to apply it. Absolutely. Well, what a background. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Redline and more about you as we move through here, of course. But as we continue on your journey, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote, some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. I know you love to drive. So Cameron, take the wheel. Well, you know, it's funny that it was as I was thinking about that question, I was like, you know, my father used to tell me that the only reason that we race cars is because it's illegal to fist fight. <laughs> and when you think about that, it's really true. And, you know, and it's really kind of a, not to be crass, but it's one of the things you don't want to be half-ass going into this. If you're going to race cars, you better stand on the gas and try to actually win mm -hmm. because someone's going to bowl you over in the process. Yep. So it's been, uh, it's been a, something that it's from business and from racing that it's kind of a uh, mantra that we've that I've taken to heart. And he was a smart guy. He understood a lot of, of the insights. A lot of his friends were some of those famous drag racers like Don Garlitz and Tom McEwen and uh, Don Perdome, guys who were famous for that kind of rip throat mentality. Yeah. And that's, that's how we've learned how to race cars so far. It's been a lot of fun. I don't think a lot of people expect it. They think that because we have to race against our customers that we're not afraid to run into them. Yeah, no, it's a great quote. And Don Garlitz has been a guest here on the show. And boy, when you listen to him, Definitely. I saw him as a kid at Orange County Raceway. I grew up down in San Diego, and I remember my dad taking me up there and saw him race his car, saw Evil Knievel jump over some buses. So you grew up in this family around cars. What a lucky guy you were. But is there a pivotal moment in your life that instigated your passion for cars? That moment when you really knew, you know what, I am a car guy. Well, when I was a little kid, even though we had so much drag racing around, I remember I got a toy of the Tyrrell six-wheeler. And I started watching uh, yeah. Formula One and I started reading newspapers and reading the Italian newspapers so that I could get the results. Back then, obviously, you had no internet. You had no way to do it. But to be honest, at Firebird Raceway in about 1984, I went with my dad, who uh, was then helping the track promoter, Charlie Allen, get that place going. That If you didn't know that, that was the replacement. All the equipment from Orange County International Raceway, which was a track that my dad ran back then, he turned it over to Charlie. Charlie moved all that to Phoenix to start a new racetrack. Okay. I, and he, my dad did his ads on the radio and those kind of things, all those be there ads you heard over the years. Yeah. 
And I went to, there was, if you remember that a lot of these places were multi-purpose facilities where mm-hmm. you had a road course that was built into the drag strip. Just like well, we have up here at Pacific Raceway. Exactly right. Long story short, I begged my father to let me drive the rental car and asked Charlie if it was okay. I wanted to drive my, my dad's rental car around the racetrack. I was only, you know, 14 or 15 at the time, but <laughs> I've been driving since I was 10 or 11 years old. We had a ranch and I was, so I knew how to drive, but I'd never been on a road course and I was dying to do it. So he said, well, there's an IndyCar test going on. You really can't do that right now. And Charlie overheard and the manager for this IndyCar team said, hey, if we're parked, we're going to be doing leak testing and stuff all day and teething stuff. If he wants to drive around the track during our test, we could care less. So they said it was okay. Oh well, my I gosh. was scared to death, right? I'm looking in the mirrors. I'm thinking, oh no, here it comes, right? Sure enough, as I was out on the racetrack, that uh, Jacques Villeneuve Sr., if you remember that, so that would be the brother of Gil Villeneuve, was running IndyCars at the time. And this Canadian tire IndyCar shows up in the mirrors of my rental car. Oh my and gosh. I, I, Reeking out like, oh, okay, this is over now. I'm never going to get to do this again. I didn't pull off the track at the right time. And I was starting to figure it out, which was actually kind of fun. <laughs> and I pulled over. I was so apologetic. And they went, no, 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 you're fine. He's just driving around anyway. He said, you can stay out there if you want because we're not driving for times. Yeah. And uh, that was the first time I ever got to drive on a road course. And wow. when it ended fairly well, I started to think, you know, this car thing might be for me. <laughs> you know, I can't. I'm sitting here just going, what? An incredible opportunity. What an incredible childhood. I mean, who could say they've ever done that with those people on the track? My goodness, Cameron. I mean, what a story. That's awesome. I'd love to crawl under the hood now and take a look at some of the roads you've driven down. You know, life and business are full of challenges and failures. And I'd love for you to share one with us that really has some meaning for you. But the more important part of this has to do with how did you overcome that particular situation? What did it teach you? Well, you know, what's interesting is that even though obviously, you know, business and getting to where you had a position at Redline to help, you know, grubble double size the business, that was something that obviously that was very challenging for us. But for me, it always goes back to racing and it goes back to where my passion was that whole time is that, you know, is that I got to drive cars in little fits and spurts. Like most people, I couldn't afford to do it. I would try to leverage every opportunity I could to get a chance to drive. And it wasn't until my position with Redline was at a point where I'd get to drive a little bit more. And my boss, Tim Kerrigan, was actually encouraging it that I got hooked up with the Bimmer World guys and James Clay. Even though I'd driven some some cars in, in some pretty competitive categories, now I was lined up with some of the best club and professional road racers in the world, guys like Peter Cunningham at real time. So believe it or not, the chump car stuff that we're involved in, there's a lot of pro guys that we drug into that. And now you are literally getting handing off the keys on a stint in an endurance race from a guy like a James Clay or a guy like a Peter Cunningham. And uh, it's intimidating. And that (laughs) challenge of figuring out, you know, when you start out, uh, even though you think you're a pretty good race driver, you start out, you're probably two seconds off them. And if you can get within a second or get within a half a second by using those little aim solos, you know, the uh, little data act position devices you can buy for about 400 bucks and you plug in the laptop Uh no one's going to do it for you you have to do it for yourself you have to care and you have to race with people that want to see you go quicker and that's really what happened for me so when i think about you know the biggest challenges i've had in all that it's trying to uh i don't kid myself that i'm a professional race driver but i have to race with a lot of them and and so you've got a hell of a target out in front of you with a teammate and trying to (laughs) get closer to them that's really been in the last especially in the last 10 years the biggest challenge of my career. 
Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I remember as a kid, my mom always said, you know, and she said this about marriage too, marry a woman that's smarter than you. She'll always keep you on your toes. And if you're going to go out there and compete in something, compete against people that are way better than you because they'll teach you so many things. So definitely a better way to go. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those. I call it a career aha moment when the headlights come on and illuminate your way for this new direction, this new idea you had. And tell us the steps you took to turn your aha moment into your success. So in my career, you know, I was the editor of Popular Hot Rodding for a long period of time. But early on in that in that portion of my life, I met Tim Kerrigan, who was the founder and president of Redline. And I, it was interesting because I met him through a bunch of drag race guys, and they were just getting involved in the drag race business. And he was coming to me for advice on how to promote and how to get involved with the teams and what we might be able to do with some of these products. And he obviously knew my dad, or he met my dad actually through me, but that was where he identified in me after seeing, you know, some of the different media and technical experience that I had, that I might be a guy that someday could run his business. And to get a moment where you, where you see that someone sees that potential in you mm-hmm. and to have enough people around you that say, Hey, trust this guy. Yeah. This guy's not going to screw you. And he needs you as badly as you need him. So even though I was very early on in the publishing business, there was a lot of stories of a lot of guys that, you know, hung on to the publishing thing for too long. It's as much as I loved the creative part of making magazines and writing. And it was what I was trained to do. I was an English major, San Diego state oh, that okay. it, it was really a, I knew it was a stepping stone to the actual business of making stuff. Right. In my career, most of the people I knew that were successful, they didn't present, they didn't race, they made stuff. And Tim Kerrigan made stuff. So having the patience to know that I would learn that business a little bit at a time and maybe that opportunity would come up just like he said it would, that was by far the aha moment for me was that, hey, if, the, if someone sees this potential in me and they're this smart enough of guy to start this from the ground up, I'd be uh, pretty smart to probably hang out with him and see if I can't learn more about how his distribution works and how to improve it yeah. and how to continue marketing cost effectively. And it, it's it's been quite a story. Uh, it's been an amazing story, and uh, welcome a fellow alum. I went to uh, graduated from San Diego State as well. So Go Aztecs. Go Aztecs. There you go. Awesome. Well, it's a great story. I love it. And let's talk a little bit about proudest moments. I would assume you've had so many, but is there one in particular you could share with us today? You know, for myself, it was actually, gosh, I would guess a little, uh, a little, little almost 15 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago that, you know, my dad had passed away in, in uh, the end of, of 2000. And, and it was a pretty hard moment for me, like it is for anybody that loses their father, but he was so instrumental for me and I had so much respect for him. And it was a weird time because we had just done three pilot episodes of myself and my and my uh, teammate who I raced with and also was my co-host Dean Scusa, you know, was a great funny car driver and a great personality. Yeah. We did this show together and we did these three shows. My dad was still alive when those three shows aired and he said, you know, and he didn't get it. He was like, dude, I got to tell you, that thing's <laughs> horrible. He's like, I, I don't understand. It was kind of that, that magazine format that we brought to life on television. It was, it was, if, and hopefully someday Viacom will get over it and part, start putting some of this stuff up on, uh, on YouTube where people can see it again because yeah. it's kind of caught in that, uh, in that uh, internet licensing world mm. that did. it doesn't allow it to get out there right now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But what was interesting is that once we got renewed on that show by Viacom, by uh, Spike TV, which came out of TNN and the Nashville Network, they hired us to do that show. It wasn't like a lot of the television programming that you see where they're basically 
getting money from advertisers to show off products as part of their content. Hmm. We didn't get paid to do that. We got to show whatever we wanted to show. And that was the integrity that the folks at Viacom and Spike TV wanted. They, they wanted something that wasn't bought and paid for. Hmm. And the fact that we renewed that show that year after my dad's death, and they ordered another 13 episodes, and then they ordered another 13 episodes, that was really a turning point for myself That from an achievement standpoint, because yeah. he was a guy who really allowed who didn't have to make many compromises in life in terms of the kind of content he provided. And I didn't want to either. And, uh, for something that I think with that after the time we were done with that show that he would have really approved the shows were really funny yeah. and they were, they were a good time. They had a huge female demographic as well. And they taught people about how cars worked and about a lot of different types of cars. So the renewal of our show in that second year was by far proudest moment in my career because most people were buying their way onto television and we got paid to do it. That was, that was <laughs> a pretty big deal for us. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I I think a lot of it had to do with being somewhat cutting edge, new, different, very, very different in the medium. Of course, now everything has come around in different ways, but that's fantastic. I love that story. Hey, let's have a little bit of fun here. I'd love to hear what was that first really special car for you? It was actually my second or third car. The first car was a was a Ford Pinto wagon, a hand-me-down, and then my, and then a Fairmont. Uh, and I'm not necessarily a Ford guy, but there just happened to be a lot of Fords that came along. Yeah. But I'd worked pretty hard and tried to earn as much money from you know racing motorcycles and doing all the other stuff that we did, all the projects that we did, and working for Diamond P doing television. My dad said he'd help me with half of a, the payment for a car if I got the other half. And so I bought a uh, brand new, hard to get at the time, 1986 Honda CRX Si. Oh, which cool. Is, which yeah. with you know the time, even though. The you look back and now it's like nothing to have 200 horsepower. That 91 horsepower was a big deal. Oh yeah. And I saved all my money, you know, past the purchase of the car to buy a bunch of Mugen parts. Some of it you almost had to import from Japan. I was able to find it because I lived in Southern California. All those tuner guys in Gardena were that you were able to find. <laughs> of course. Torrance. You were able to get at some of those parts, but a lot of it was imported straight from Tokyo. And, and so I built kind of a little Mugen copycat to the car, to the famous Mugen CRX, a white one. And it was white. My car was white as well. And I had a lot of fun with that car. That was the car I took to college. And the first car that I ever autocrossed, probably drove it a little too quickly in the in Tribuco Canyon and a few places in Orange County. <laughs> of and, course. But we had a lot of fun with that. And that was at the time when I started trying to get into the IMSA Firehawk series and things later on, that was one of those cars that was so successful that now a guy who's a close friend of mine and a teammate through all of our chump car craziness, Peter Cunningham, you know, the famous, Oh yeah. He was really the guy who helped develop a lot of those cars. So it's so funny how, you know, uh, comes back around in life, it comes right back around. So that car was pretty special to me and was, you know, was a big part of kind of that life. A lot of, for a kid who grew up with muscle cars, I showed up, I think I parked it in the parking lot at SEMA. And three years later, that car would have been on a pedestal at SEMA. So uh, when the tuning prints took over, so it was, it was pretty neat to, to think that that was, you know, really the, the, was the first car I ever bought. Yeah. Once again, you're ahead of your time. So that's very cool. How about a vehicle that you let go that, man, you wish you had back in your garage today? Yeah. You know, I could, it's, it's pretty easy was the 67 Mustang convertible that anybody who used to read popular hot riding back in the day knows that it was a car that we had called project good from far and far from good. <laughs> and it was a car I kind of stole from my dad to do a bunch of mods and give back to him. And he ended up selling it. He didn't even tell me he was selling oh. it. So, so if there's a guy in Oklahoma that bought this car, please call me, track yes. it down. 
Yeah, because we did a uh, a little stroker Ford motor for it and did an AODE, you know, electronic version of the AOD four speed transmission. So nice before pe- before there was the even term resto mod, we had built a resto mod basically that handled it looked right, but it was a little bit rough. It, you know, it didn't have that kind of uh, detailer's attention you would like, but a lot of people loved that car and I did, and it was finally fun to drive. I didn't log enough miles on it, so that's one of the few kind of sentimental cars for me that I've, I'd love to have back. Well, yeah, those cars, yeah, listeners out there, if you've got that car, contact me so I can put you in touch with Cameron for sure. Well, how Wear about- me on price, I guarantee it. Yeah, I guarantee it. I always ask people at this point in our talk about current projects, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Redline Oil and let our customers, or let our listeners rather, know out there, what are you guys doing there today? Tell us about Redline Oil. You know, it's interesting that for those that don't know Redline, our product line is the top of the top of the top. Mm-hmm. We invest in raw materials, ester-based motor oils with, you know, PAO, polyethylene that at a level that no other manufacturers in the world, not Motul, not Mobile, certainly not the Royal Purples and people that are building a little lower quality product. We're talking the highest end raw materials that you can pack into a product. That's what's in Redline. And it sells for, for surprisingly low cost that... What we do and what I liked a lot about coming to work there and then being able to further develop the product line is that we don't have to make a lot of compromises. Mm. We could make the exact viscosity in the exact level of friction for your transmission. And if the market's big enough, we can put it on the market. So we specialize in having a lot of part numbers so that you can nail your application. It's helped in the racing business too. So the one thing that's very unique about Redline is that we, even though we have some racing oils that have a lot less detergency and a lot more zinc and phosphorus in them, uh, our regular road car oils have pretty high levels of zinc, far more than the API will allow. So what it, what it means is that a lot of our uh, products, the same thing that goes in a race car is what actually works in your street car. You know, we're getting ready to head to the 25 hours of Thunder Hill where we're going to run a BMW this weekend. Nice. Most of the stuff that's in the car is the same stuff that's in the cars in the parking lot. So that mentality for Redline, it's been very tough to get over for a lot of people because they think it's a racing company mm-hmm. when racing's really probably only 15 or 20% of what we do. It just happens to be the first 15% of our business. You yeah. Know, it takes 80% of our time. But <laughs> Of course. But yeah, but most of our consumption around the world, we're in 75 different countries now. It's 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 all about using racing technologies that work in streetcars better than the licensed OE streetcar products you have. Yeah, you know, it's an awesome brand. I've been using the products for years. When we had our pre-show chat here before we started the show, I told you that I race finished cars and I used your products back then. But even before then, all the way back... Uh, in street cars, you know, because uh, being a car guy, I'm real sensitive to what I put in my vehicles. So you built a tremendous brand, tremendous quality. Everybody who's into cars knows Redline and uh, kudos to you and your team for what you guys have produced there. Here's a very introspective question for you, Cameron. I love this question. If you were a car, what kind of car would Cameron be and why? Well, that that one's not even that hard for me. It's easy at the snap of a finger, a 962 Porsche. Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, here we go. A lot of people don't know that a 962 is where you see those flip-top doors like you see on a classic sports prototype. Yeah. That you can lock it with a key. It literally, when you bought one new from Porsche, it came with a key. So you could physically lock the doors on the car. <laughs> yeah, you could drive them on and the street. It's, 
it's got that familiar Porsche early Volkswagen, you know, round, you know, uh, plunger style door latch yeah. where you just push on the button and it comes up. So, and that's got a key in it. So it's kind of funny. So think about a car like a 962. You could win Le Mans with it. It's got straight line speed when it's trimmed out. It's got a ton of grip with giant tunnels. It's reliable. It's beautiful. It's versatile. It was as good at Le Mans as it was, you know, at street circuits in the 80s when the IMSA GTP thing was so big. And now they've become some of the most valuable race cars in the world. So if you were going to be a car, why wouldn't you want to be all those things? (laughs) Um, A guy who was practically my my godfather, who was one of my dad's best friends growing up, and and, uh, I grew up with him, and he was really influential on me in the car thing, a guy named Jim Busby, who, you know, presented a lot of Porsches and BMWs over the years. Yeah that he taught us a lot about why those cars were special when we got to go to some of those races with him. And so there's some heritage in, in the why that would be that car. The other thing that was neat about those cars and that was something I liked about it is it truly defined a hot rod that you could buy one from Porsche, but you could go to Fab Car somewhere else and practically build your own from the ground up. Yeah. And a lot of the, the quicker cars were very much changed from what Porsche is. And it's like us, right? We're all different. We're different all the time. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and it would kind of evolve. So it was neat the way those cars evolved over time to be something, you know, you saw a little different bodywork on some of them because they made their own bodywork to suit what they were trying to do. So, yeah, you know, those, so your question actually uh, leads right to me. I'm the drag race kid that wants to be a 962. <laughs> You're my first 962. So I think that's pretty cool as well. And yeah, Jim Busby, I'm aware of who he is and uh, I've talked to him over my years of being involved in cars, so uh, wow, nice to have him in your life as well. Cameron, up next is the last lap, but before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsor. Metrovac has been manufacturing and providing quality automotive vacuums and blowers since 1939. I've used their portable vacuum and blowers for over 15 years in my garage, on my cars, motorcycles, around my home, and you should too. Their Air Force Master Blaster Revolution is my go-to tool every time I wash and detail my vehicles. Powered by two twin-fan 4.0 peak horsepower motors, the Master Blaster delivers up to 58,000 feet per minute of clean, warm, dry, filtered air. Dry your car without a towel and avoid those nagging micro-scratches. Perfect for the wheels, engines, motorcycles, and all those frustrating water traps in trim, door jams, and seals. Check out all of Metrovac's quality products Deliberately made better in the USA. Metrovac is the right choice. Learn more today at Metrovac.com. Use discount code CARSYA20 and you'll get 20% off your first order. That's right, 20% off. Details at CARSYA.com slash sponsors. Okay, Cameron, we're back and we're entering the last lap. You're a racer and you know what this means. The white flag is out. Time to put your foot into it. And I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Yeah, let's go. Okay. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? I actually got that advice from Jim Busby when he and his son David and I were racing alcohol dragsters. And he told us that the tires on the trailer were as important as the tires on the race car. Oh boy, isn't that the truth? You got to get to the track, right? <laughs> yep, exactly right. And we struggle with that sometimes. Yeah, you know, people that have trailers that don't maintain them, and boy, there's a lot out there. You see them on the side of the road with one of those wheels gone because the bearing's frozen up or it's just come off the trailer. So wear flat tires and things. So, yep, great advice from you. Thank you, Jim. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? 
Absolutely. Learning how to communicate, especially learning how to write. Something, you know, that I learned at San Diego State. I got into better schools, but I went down and became an Aztec. And learning how to, that technical writing class that I got to learn how to craft and simplify how you communicate properly. And that's by simplifying. So absolutely. Learning how to write. By far the best personal habit and, and using that kind of communication daily. Absolutely. You know, I think I take I think I took some of those same courses there. There are some tough courses, but definitely have served me well over the years. Now, how about a resource? I know there's a lot out there, but is there one in particular you think our listeners would really enjoy that you like? Uh, you know what? Well, this is going to be selfish, and I promise it's not self-promoting, but it's something that I put a lot into is mm-hmm. that at redlineoil.com, we do an application guide that has more than 400,000 applications and we wrote and mapped it all ourselves. It's oh not a gosh. database we bought. It's a database we built because as the company that makes the, a product that's far higher quality than what the original equipment guys are putting in your car, mm-hmm. that we have to go and personally certify that this is going to work in your transmission. Mm. If it doesn't, it's on us. That's yeah. a trouble. It's a problem. So that the educational side of that site, when you start cross-referencing what types of products are, and then you start looking at what gearbox or what engine, because it actually has the transmission and engine codes built in part of the code, you start learning more about how cars work and why by from the application of which Redline products we recommend for them. So that's awesome. that's definitely the that's a it's a it's a resource a lot of my best car guys and buddies go to all the time because they ask me which Redline goes in my car. I say go to the guy. Awesome. Great. Well, I will definitely have a link to that on your show notes page here at Cars. Yeah, I love that concept. I love the idea of it. Self-serving, forget it. Uh, car guys out there need to know the right information for sure. Cameron, is there one book in particular you think our listeners would really enjoy reading? Well, I think it's going to get made into a movie soon. So I hope they read the book before the movie gets made because it's been a while. There's another guy that was like a godfather to me was my dad's broadcasting partner, Brock Yates, mm. who obviously one of the best journalists. And he's really not in a good way these days because he's, you know, in the throes of Alzheimer's these days. Mm, yeah. And and Yates's book on Enzo Ferrari mm. has all of the stuff that no one else wants to talk about. Yeah. It's got all the crazy illegal stuff that went on in Italy back in the day. And it's not necessary. It's certainly no puff piece. It's not that glorious for <laughs> if you're a, if probably a, a Ferrari member, but it does pay respect to what he achieved and how he achieved it in that period. Any of those Brock Yates books I would recommend, you know, about Cannonball or the, there's a, there's a book on Detroit on the, the downfall of the car industry and things like that. But, oh, yeah. uh, Definitely the the Brock Yates book on Ferrari. I believe uh, Scorsese or somebody's got it finally tied it up where it's going to be a movie with some pretty big stars in it. Read the book first. Yeah, yeah. I think is uh, De Niro going to play? I I think that's – I think you're on the right track. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be great. Well, that book and many of Brock Yates' books have been recommended here on Cars. Yeah. And I'll remind our listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Cameron's been so kind to share with us today at CarsYeah.com. And there's a place on the site called Guest Recommended Books with quick, easy links so you can get your hands on all these and read them. And I would definitely suggest you do that and read it before the movie comes out. Great advice there. We are up to the checkered flag here, Cameron. And this last question can be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, and I'll include collector race car if you'd like, what money's no object. Today, I'm going to write that check. What would that one vehicle be and why? It's a vehicle that we actually had 
And so I did. I don't want to repeat myself from that question you had earlier about what kind of car you wouldn't let go. But it's a car I would buy back and build back again as a collector car. Uh-huh. Uh, 1975 Jaguar XJ6C. British mm-hmm. motor racing green with the saddle interior and that saddle top with the sunroof. And do just like like we did with my dad is is we had two or three of them is pull the six out run it as a v8 put an ls in it and <laughs> so back in the day it used to overheat so badly i didn't know what water water was one of redline's biggest products if i didn't know what water water was we probably would have kept the car uh as you know they got tiny little radiators because they're 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 good looking it was all about the aesthetics and not necessarily about the function plus those cars were built to drive around at you know 45 degrees in england they weren't right. necessarily designed for a 105 degree day in southern california but definitely a 75 xjc the springs a little bit lower it in the front and as long as you could learn how to deal with all the lucas electrics in the car <laughs> that would be my collector car that you would drive you can make it reliable enough to not be afraid to drive at any time oh gosh they're so beautiful they're so awesome cars and i'm not going to say one bad thing about lucas because the last time i had a guest on the show and we were talking about the prince of darkness my computer completely crashed we're not going to say anything bad about them, but the Jaguar is a, a beautiful car. And, oh, man, yeah, great choice. And I love the modifications that you've just described to us. That's the way to go. Well, Cameron, you have taken me on a great ride today. I knew you would, and I've really enjoyed having you on the show. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yacht listeners and with me. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off to the sunset in that slightly modified Jaguar XJC? God, that's hard. <laughs> I would tell you that the going back to even when we did popular hot rodding back in the day, and it chimes back into what we do now with Specky 46 and a lot of these BMWs, is get to the track that a lot of people modify their cars where the cars have now far more capability than they're ever going to try to get out of their cars. And that's one thing, you know, now that we've got these cars on the limit and we're having to make modifications and make changes to try to improve, to go quicker, go faster, or more reliably. It reminds me that getting out to the road course is not that hard. Doing a track day is not going to tear your car up too badly. You're going to, you can put a set of brake pads. Who cares? Go. Yeah. So the learning, the, the art of learning how to drive or learning how to be quick or constantly improving, it's a lot like golf and it's a lot like skiing and that there's always going to be people that are a lot better than you at this, but you're going to measure yourself on your own improvement. So that's my recommendation. I don't care if it's a muscle car or a sports car or your, or the rental car that you've got you know, in the parking lot, you know, drag it out to a track day, figure out how to go race at whatever level you can afford to participate at, because yeah. it's been a, uh, it's all I ever wanted to do as a kid. And now that I get to do it, it's, uh, it's been really satisfying. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, just uh, even with, with teenagers, taking them to the track for a driver's day, driver's education, you can learn so much. You can become a better driver. Do not race on the streets. Keep your speeds down. There's just too many people out there not paying it attention these days but it's great advice that's how i learned how to race it's so much fun to go club racing club driving just a de day i mean just have some fun out there so great advice what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and redline well, you can learn about Redline at redlineoil.com. A lot of listeners will probably find my page out on Facebook where we're pretty active in social media, but redlineoil.com is a great place to go to visit a lot of this to see what we do and uh, support the guys that support us, the folks like Bimmer World and, and that have uh, broadcast a lot of our activities. You, it's not hard to find us online. We're racing just about every circuit in the country in lots of different cars, but uh, don't be afraid to drag yourself out on a Saturday and come introduce yourself to us. We'll, uh, you never know if there's, an, if there's a right seat, we'll 
we'll, we'll strap you in. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything Cameron shared with us today at carsyeah.com slash Cameron Evans, or just put Cameron in the search bar and his show notes page will pop right up. Cameron, thanks again for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Mark, thanks so much for having me on the show. And uh, it's a pretty special time with all this technology we have that it's one big car club. Just glad to be a part of it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!